Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling themes and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're exploring the theme of justice in Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. To start us off, we have a quote that comes from the Avatar episode, Avatar Day. (laughs) Aang is on trial for the crimes this town is accusing Avatar Kyoshi of doing. And so this is a conversation between the mayor of this town and Aang. Evidence? Hmm. That's not how our court system works. Then how can I prove my innocence? Simple. I say what happened, and then you say what happened, and then I decide who's right. That's why we call it justice. Because it's just us. Yeah, so clearly a joke about justice here, (laughs) but one that also brings up interesting ideas of yeah what what does justice mean is justice what is given out in your justice system or is justice something that is more ephemeral or more or defined in a way that is more personal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what does it mean for somebody outside of the community mm-hmm. versus people within the community absolutely Uh, I would certainly say that having someone be both the prosecution and the judge (laughs) does not sound like it would bring a lot of justice in. And the mayor. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think there's ideas of impartiality are are good things. Keyword ideas. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Ways in which that is still mistreated and, and can lead to all sorts of negative implications as we see with our own quote-unquote justice system but yeah i think that that this episode is is an interesting one because i think it in some ways it subverts ideas of what we think of when we think of justice to have kyoshi at the end basically say like no i i, I would have killed the conqueror i would have done that i sure i he kind of it was an accident but, but i don't really see the difference exactly <laughs> and then what that means for her reincarnation ang and yeah mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah, it's very interesting how the community sees that, where we'd be like, wait, but they're different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting because clearly, even though Aang is terrible at arguing the evidence, but clearly he and Sokka and Katara all have this idea of presenting evidence mm-hmm. to prove your innocence. And so, uh, yeah, I kind of wonder what their community's justice systems look like. Yeah, when I was thinking about this specifically, I was also just thinking about how Sokka grew up without a lot of other people his age around, not a lot of adults around, in a very secluded village in the South Pole. And yet somehow has all of these knowledge of (laughs) science and pop culture references and how court cases are done and how detectives work. Pop culture references. Yeah, because like he wears a... Sherlock Holmes hat oh. <laughs> like why when he believes that he needs to be this investigator or whatever does he, does he yeah exactly <laughs> like what is it that he like where has he seen a pipe before he pretty <laughs> much just loves wearing costumes and dressing up and this is an opportunity to do so yeah so is there is there a huge theater company in the South Pole that we haven't seen that is where he's Huge's getting all this in- <laughs> important to his 
upbringing, I guess, <laughs> or his, his culturalization. Sherlock, just like Tarlock, it could have been a <laughs> tribal name for them. Makes sense to me. <laughs> well, should we move into the character you brought? Sure. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Korra. Okay. Because one of the first things that Korra does in the first episode, Welcome to Republic City, is she gets picked up by the police for destruction of property as she's trying to apprehend these triple triads. (laughs) And her first encounter with any kind of formal authorities in this city is one in which she is being chided for what she has done, for what Lin Beifong calls out her for as vigilante justice. She can't just come in and start meeting out vigilante justice in this city. Which I think is is fun because it kind of is an interesting look at this contentious relationship that often exists in the background of superhero fiction, which Avatar can at times fall into. Mm-hmm. There is this idea that superheroes are these the, these people with powers and uh, typically a kind of mission. They're picking up the slack of what injustices occur because the system fails is kind of often how it's seen or the things that the system can't handle. But this always goes hand in hand with a general cultural idea in America, at least, that the system is just, (laughs) that police should be respected, and that the system is there to catch criminals and and people who do bad things. Yeah, I wonder, like, police aren't the ones who are, you know, the writers in these shows and these movies and these comics. So why do they keep putting forth this idea? I don't understand, personally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is so culturally ingrained that that it's something that we don't even think about. Although I will say that, um, at least with the military, and I would be very surprised if it wasn't the same with police, that oftentimes TV shows, movies, etc., Hollywood studios will work with them in getting access to their equipment, to their vehicles, to all these other kinds of things. And in exchange, they get some sort of approval process over scripts and things like that. So Sure, but it can be used as propaganda. They for didn't that. need that with the animators in South that Korea. Is true. That's, that is that true. wasn't necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's the, there are these strong cultural ideas here too. And and in the first episode of Korra, we already see start seeing these things come to a head where there is this formal police system that is in some way not dealing with the issue of the triple triads um, mm-hmm. in a way that Cora had to, where these these shops were having to pay these insurance payments essentially to the triple triad gang, and Cora was trying to do something about that. So that is something that the police were not able to stop. But then Cora, the person who we're rooting for, who the show is named for, is brought into the police for the thing that she's done in this, which also, of course, gives her this kind of fish-out-of-water element of, look, she's never been in Republic City. This is a new thing for her. Well, and just her personality in general. It's like... Also that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not use restraint and, like, the simplest way of stopping people. Let's throw them through the windows of this shop. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, And I think it, it also gives a good distinction between this and Avatar The Last Airbender, 
we're seeing Korra as a very different avatar with a very different personality. Mm-hmm. But also, look, we have a different setting here. We're talking about the big city setting. So, yeah, I, I think that that first episode and Korra's kind of engagement with it is is fascinating to think about through this lens, particularly when I think then about the last episode. Because the last episode has Korra fighting against Kuvira, but not doing so out of an idea of justice. I think by that last episode, Korra's motivation has become one of protection. One where she thinks that Kuvira needs to be stopped, but it's not because Kuvira is just a villain, the way that you could say the triple triads are are kind of put forward as. It's because Kuvira is putting people in harm's way, because she's using spirit vines to create weapons that are damaging. Korra even says, I can't let her go when she has these kinds of weapons. Um, Mm -hmm. She has to be stopped because she has this destructive power. And, you know, she's being a dictator and and she's doing all these other kinds of things. So Korra wants to stop her, yeah, to protect people who are in danger from this. But she also saves Kuvira's life at the end. She's also, you know, helps her to survive something that would have been caused by Kuvira's own arrogance. And Sue is the one who says that Kuvira will pay for what she's done. She's the one who's coming in here with ideas of justice or vengeance or or something like that. And I think this is a really good example of Korra's character growth, that she is much wiser and she is much kinder and more compassionate and more, I think, empathetic um, and more aware of the world as it is beyond kind of the simplistic notions of justice that she came into Republic City with. Mm. Um, so I, I think that, that looking at her first and last episode through this theme really made me think about how Korra as a character, I think, really does go through so much growth, which is something I appreciate about the show. And this is a good example of that. Mm. Yeah, and I kind of wonder how her being disabled for a while mm-hmm. and her just not engaging with the world and the problems that the world has kind of helped her along in that way in a sense of understanding that she is not responsible for everything Mm. and it is not her role to stop every little thing she's supposed to try to maintain balance she's supposed to try to bring peace when is necessary but she can't do everything. She can't be all places. And and so, yeah, maybe her stepping back for those three years helped her kind of, I don't know, be able to put things in perspective a little bit more. Because she didn't even want to fight Kavira to begin with. Mm-hmm. She just wanted them to leave, not invade, and have it just be peaceful instead of automatically resorting to combat which i think yeah definitely like you said she would have done at the beginning of the series yeah absolutely uh, she even says to kavira that you know she, she understands her because she experienced her own vulnerability and she understands how she would never want to feel that again and kuvira being orphaned and seeing what's happened to the earth kingdom is taking a different set of choices but is reacting to that kind of vulnerability in a similar way. And, and Korra is able to empathize with that in, I think, a really profound way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think the, the season before, her being involved in helping to rebuild the Air Nation, mm-hmm. yeah, it showed her that there are other roles for the Avatar than just stopping conflicts. Absolutely, and she, she only goes to the Red Lotus because 
they demand that she does. She they take people prisoner, and mm-hmm. so again, she's she's going because she thinks it's best, not because she's trying to mete out some kind of justice. Yeah, yeah. It's funny though when you were comparing her to to Aang, because when I think of Aang and destruction of property, he did it for fun in Omashu. That's true. <laughs> the poor cabbage man. That is true. <laughs> but in general, causing less destruction in his wake. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> I think generally Aang as a 12-year-old is more considerate than Kor as a 17-year-old. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, what plot did you bring to talk about? So I wanted to talk about taking bending away and kind of look at the different reasons and methods and outcomes, kind of contrasting Aang and Amon. Mm. And so Aang, which we know takes Ozai's bending away in this kind of epic end to the series new form of justice. And obviously mentioned it before, we'll mention it always. (laughs) I love it. It's so great. And we also find out later that in Legend of Korra, when there's like a flashback, that he took Amon and Tarluk's father, Yukon, his bending away. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, the benders were extremely dangerous and violent. Ozai was going to commit genocide. And Yukon took hundreds of people's agency away, killed people, etc. And instead of killing either of them or even imprisoning them like the Red Lotus was imprisoned in solitary confinement in these extreme conditions, Aang, you know, took their bending away, which was taking away their access to a significant source of their power. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they had social power, but I think it was so tied to their bending that I could imagine that there would be some people who would still want to follow them and whatnot because of their ideologies. But I think for them, a lot of people would probably drop off after they know that they can't do any bending anymore or can't intimidate them or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Then we have Amon who for him, like his aim is to take every bender's ability away. It's, it's just so different because Aang uses this form of justice as a reactionary thing and that's context-specific mm-hmm. um, when someone, yeah, becomes dangerous enough or did enough harm with their powers, then he takes it away. But Amon, in contrast, sought a more just world through equalizing the playing fields and making it so that no one could bend and thus no one could have unjust power over others, at least in terms of, of innate bending powers. So yeah, I just, I think it's interesting because Aang's is a last resort. He even gave the Fire Lord a chance to stop his attacks and a chance to accept defeat. Uh, and then when he turned his back, he still tried to attack him. Mm-hmm. And then he took his bending away and, and he let Yakon stand trial. Amon, his method was different. It was proactive. He aimed first at the police force 
then uh, pro-benders that profited through paying off the ref, then the mob bosses, and, you know, kind of finally the avatar, so that people would hopefully stop resisting. Amon's true aims were indiscriminate. It wasn't only the triple triads and the police that he wanted to take bending away from, even though he did some of those first. But, you know, when he captures Tenzin's whole family and takes their bending away, they didn't do anything problematic structurally, you know, Mm -hmm. like the others did, but he still wants to take their bending away. And so, yeah, I just, I think it's interesting that Aang's justice is about stopping harm that is happening and Amon's is about preventing any potential future harm from happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously I've got superheroes in my mind, but it, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of... When do you not, Chris? <laughs> um, there's this classic essay by a man named Umberto Eco, which is about Superman. And about, I think it was written in the 1950s. And it's about how a comic series like Superman is about maintaining the status quo and mm-hmm. how superheroes require certain kinds of things to be considered a superhero. But one of the things is that they cannot be revolutionary the way that Amon is. They cannot be proactive. They are reactive because they are about maintaining property and safety and, and these other kinds of things rather than changing something that will allow future people to be more safe or more, more what have you, um, mm-hmm. particularly because they have more power. And when someone with power is more revolutionary, that can often lead to damages to people who are doing well in the current system and you know some of course the more villainous that can include damages to safety and and i'm not saying that's not a problem Mm -hmm. but i think that there are um there is an interesting ideological difference that you're really highlighting if amon just was fine taking people's bending away and then letting everything be i don't know if that is a unjust or a a evil evil act exactly He also uses violence in the inaction of this, and I think that those violent acts are bad. So it's it's a more complicated element there. Yeah, it's like I'm not just 100% against what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Like, I am because it is taking agency away. But at the same time, it's like, what percentage of people have to use their bending to extort people, exploit people, harm people, intimidate people for it to be like okay let's take this away Mm -hmm. you know it's a difficult thing because people can do terrible things in our world without these superpowers you know and then thinking about people with superpowers Mm -hmm. it's just that would be a scary reality and he had direct abusive experiences with bending from his father and and he himself had that power and, mm-hmm. and more power than most benders. I think that that is one of the other elements here that we've, we've talked about in the past is how bending can be tied to identity. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, also complicates it because when you're not only taking someone's agency away, but you are making them lose a part of their identity, something that was important to the way they interacted with the world and the way they saw themselves, that, I think, has some more moral implications than if it was just taking someone's money away and equalizing that in a way. I don't, I don't care if someone identifies with being rich, you know. <laughs> I do care. They should have it taken away. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that there's something more, because bending often is so cultural, 
that comes with that as an identity that I'm I'm less sure about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just it it's very interesting because with Aang's method, even though there are definitely are pros to it, mm-hmm. a lot of harm is going to happen first. With the Mons, it it takes away some of that ability to cause harm. Yeah. But causes some amount of harm in the process. Yeah. Um, but I understand both of their perspectives, which is why Amon is such a compelling villain. Agreed. Yeah. Well, why don't we go into our compelling questions? Yeah, let's do it. What do you have for me? I was wondering why you think metal benders make up the core of Republic City's police force. I think it's because metal bending is particularly difficult, and therefore even earthbenders wouldn't be able to necessarily get out of their constraints and things like that. Yeah, it seems to work against all of the bending types unless you are a metal bender. So I think that that's probably a big reason. Probably another one is that Toph was just so powerful. You're like, well, you want Toph at the helm. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) want that, but Republic City wanted that. And of course she would want her forced to be up to certain standards and then it was just kind of continued after that yeah i was i was essentially thinking the same thing that Mm. that there's there's an element of nepotism involved (laughs) with the Beifongs being metal benders and with toff in particular building the force around that and seeing also the power of it but but that is another element that that can often come with police forces is this idea of there needing to be a power differential Mm -hmm. Um, where the police force needs to be able to handle whatever threats might come their way. And in the United States, that means that apparently they need tanks and, (laughs) uh, you know, SWAT gear and drones and all these other kinds of things. Other countries, police officers don't carry guns. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, they're operating in a different context. They are engaging with different kinds of crimes. So I'm not saying that we could just magically go to a gunless police force tomorrow. Not magically, but eventually uh, yeah, we could. Yeah, but I do think that it's something to aspire to. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, I think that there's this element of, of the police has to have the strongest capabilities to be able to, to match these these kinds of threats. And so... But you mainly need to do that in a society where things are so stratified with disproportionate access to resources and wealth and opportunities that it creates the situation of desperation of gangs of all of these different aspects that can contribute to different types of threats to the average person living in the world but you know in places that are a little better at being a little more equal in society. Yeah, maybe they don't need as much to quote-unquote enforce the law as much. Absolutely, yeah. And it also makes me think about how, you know, certainly in our society, police funding has gone up and up and up and up. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's the reason they can have all of these extreme weapons and, and equipment and things like that. So I'm wondering what that looks like in Republic City. Is there a huge police budget that allows them not only to build dirigibles in the sky that they use for their Mm -hmm. policing, but also do they go and recruit young 
these metal people who have metal bending talent or, or potential and is there a good amount of resources put to ensure that they will join the police force so that they can maintain that type of power superiority yeah how many how much resources needs to be put into that to ensure that it's gonna be the case mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. sounds about right <laughs> Well, what is your compelling question for me? <laughs> so mine is, what are the different forms of justice or perspectives on justice that you see in either show? Yeah, I think that concepts of punishment often come into these ideas of, of justice. What is the just punishment for a crime or for something that someone has done? Mm-hmm. And Aang is one of those who believes that there is no crime that is so serious that it warrants death as punishment. I think that is a little-held belief yes. in his time. In our time. <laughs> in our time, yes. <laughs> but it, it, it actually makes me think of the quote, how their punishment is done by a spinny board. <laughs> totally. <laughs> a wheel. I was thinking about that too, right? <laughs> how they have a list of different things that do have different severity because one of them is community service right Mm -hmm. it's like you can be killed in all these gruesome ways or get community service it's kind of like the ultimate unbiased (laughs) not that you shouldn't have tears but but the idea that just because you're guilty you are then put into any of those tears (laughs) based off of a random drawing or a random spin (laughs) is a is... Do they have different spinning boards for different, <laughs> different crimes? crimes? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, it's like, bake cakes for the citizens. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I see those as some of the ones that we see in Avatar. And by Korra, we do see a trial system that seems to be much more similar to modern trial systems today. Mm-hmm. Where... Like with, somewhat influential person like Tencent can pull some strings and get her out of prison. Very much like today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not that prison is the answer, but, yes, you know, yes. she didn't even have to go to trial. Well, and, and that's the thing about this topic. We see injustices portrayed in shows like this because you need a villain. You need something mm-hmm. for, for them to fight against. But... I also can't just be like, this is unjust because it's different from our society. Because our society has a justice system that is very, very sophisticated in all of its mechanisms. It has a lot of interlacting parts, um, different elements, checks and balances that are supposed to maintain different elements of it. But it is inherently unjust as well. Mm -hmm. And so the sophistication of a system does not inherently mean that it has more justice even though that sophistication can come through ideals of equality and egalitarianism and innocence until proven guilty and and all these other kinds of elements when they're actually put into place and when they interlock in the complicated ways that we have in our society they lead to racism sexism all sorts of systemic injustices and marginalization and oppression that we continue to see and so it's like yeah okay, Avatar and Legend of Korra have these systems where we're seeing characters misuse their authority and misuse their positions. And it's like, oh, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. But then it's like, (laughs) there is no example of a just system that I've actually seen. Is I guess kind of what I'm getting to. (laughs) It's like all the systems in Korra and Avatar, I would argue, are unjust to an extent. 
and every system I've seen in any other piece of media and the system that we live in are also unjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, that kind of took a down, <laughs> downward spiral. Conclusion. <laughs> there is no justice. <laughs> Were you seeing other, other examples that you want to talk about? Yeah, I was thinking about Hama, mm. the bloodbender, puppet master, and her idea of justice was revenge-based. Mm-hmm. It was lock up fire nation people like the soldiers locked up me mm-hmm. after all of her fellow waterbenders died yeah also i think jet and the freedom fighters mm-hmm. they have this kind of perspective of whatever the cost to get the fire nation soldiers out of the area is worth it and it's just very much this for the greater good ideology yeah that i think the Red Lotus has maybe to some degree as well. There, there's this mm-hmm. very much about decentralizing power is like the just thing. But even if that occurs through violence and causes violence, that's fine. I'm not sure how much violence actually plays a role in, in their perspectives of justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also was kind of thinking about the Avatar it's interesting because it doesn't seem like Rava necessarily has some idea of justice that has been laid out. I mean, don't let Vatu out to wreak havoc on the world. And so the main kind of guiding principle for the Avatar is about balance. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Rava would equate balance and justice in certain ways or if Rava doesn't really have the same idea of justice being this spiritual since the dawn of time creature um I'm not really sure but but I do think it's interesting because I think that leads to the avatar is very much having to live in the world deal with what they're dealing with and like figure it out for themselves rather than being reincarnated and they already have an idea of of what justice means mm-hmm. yeah very interesting well should we move into our missed opportunities that sounds like a good idea what's yours mine is sparked by the book club reading that you were recently participating in mm. i thought about, <laughs> about redress and reparations in this case for the japanese american community mm-hmm. due to the incarceration we might have the same missed opportunity <laughs> but you're going first this time well, usually i steal yours that's so. true yeah what what reparations does the fire nation need to mm-hmm. pay for the things that they've done in the hundred years war right we see them for example give back the land that they tried to colonize and then some of the land some of the land some of it becomes republic city the comics kind of go into this as well and and yeah that's great i guess but that is again maybe (laughs) going back to what's closer to this to a kind of status quo but it doesn't really take into consideration things beyond territory because Mm -hmm. not only did the fire nation have these lands but they also benefited from that in many ways they were able to continue to industrialize continue to grow their economy to reap the resources of those areas and so they impoverished families mm-hmm. who then probably had malnourishment also stigmatized certain types of bending mm-hmm. which 
kids aren't just gonna suddenly get over, you know. Yeah. So there there are real economic, cultural, social, agricultural, other kinds of inequalities that were caused by this. That a simple, we're not going to be invading you anymore, (laughs) doesn't end. (laughs) Doesn't cut it, Zuko. Exactly. So funnily enough, I think that this is another example of something that we've talked a lot about, which is how redemption arcs can often be It ends with one person making one decision that's, like, better than a bad decision. Exactly. And it's like, yeah. And and then it's just, it's done. Um, And I think that this is an example of, okay, the Fire Nation is in some way being redeemed. And by Korra, we see that it is, you know, a compassionate member of the community of nations in this world. Mm. But... Yeah, is there other forms of redress that exist that are really going to strike at the many inequalities that were created through the Fire Nation's actions and the things they benefited from that beyond just that one decision that Zuko makes at the end? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So was that yours? Yeah. I mean, there wasn't even an official apology that we know of. I assume (laughs) Zuko made one. Yeah. That I would assume. But, like, yeah, reparations are not commonly given in our world. And I don't know if they would be. Like, how do you give reparations for most of the world for 100 years? Like, you don't have enough money. And And even as part of Japanese Americans fighting for reparations and redress, like, there is nothing that anyone can do to undo the damage that was done. Any amount of money you're giving is symbolic amount because Mm -hmm. nothing can repay what people lost, whether that was their freedoms, their dignity, lives of friends, family members, their businesses, everything, you know? Yeah. And so you cannot repay it but something, giving something to try to help the community be able to rebuild in certain ways. So yeah, I, I don't know what that would look like for the Fire Nation <laughs> since they did so much damage in so many places. Yeah. Well, and, and you bring up an interesting point too, because for these types of reparations to exist, they really have to come from within. They have to come from within the society that is is giving them. And that, that can come from marginalized communities within that society, as in the case of Japanese Americans. But mm-hmm. it's not like the UN could have been like, hey, America, you've got to give reparations to yeah. the Japanese Americans. And that would have happened, right? It had to be come from enough political will from the inside. And, and so that would have to come from the Fire Nation as well. Because the opposite example of that would be something like Germany after World War One. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it doesn't go well. No, because there there is a power differential. And it's that mm-hmm. the person with less power, now that they've lost this war, is then forced forced to give reparations by more powerful groups and that leads to intense poverty discontent continued antagonism Mm -hmm. um and in that case help to bring about the rise of the nazi party (laughs) you can't punish people to give reparations yes exactly it needs to come in the spirit of remorse repentance and apology you know not that that's necessarily what happened in the in the japanese american circumstances but at least enough for it to have gone through absolutely yeah 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 that's a great way of putting it 
And I was also thinking about like how meaningful would it have been if the Fire Nation set up a fund for the preservation of the air nomad culture. Mm-hmm. We we do get to see in the comics a bit about how Air Temple Island and, you know, people started trying to preserve airbender culture and air nomad culture, but it would have been really nice if that came from the people who destroyed so much of it, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You do need to continue reading the comics. Okay, maybe it does. It goes more into that. <laughs> Not just, just. I think generally about this whole this whole discussion. Listeners who have read some of those comics may may be inching in your seat, saying, "But mm. you know, this happens." So, uh, but this was your missed opportunity as well, and you read them all. <laughs> I haven't read all of them, so huh. I've seen them kind of start to touch on some of these ideas, oh. um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful they'll continue to explore them in okay. ways that are more intense. Good, good. And of course, we've got a ton of new Avatar content coming generally now that Avatar Studios exists. So we're going to have movies and new TV shows and more comics and books and stuff. So there's a lot more to come that these are great ways, places that they could explore. Yeah, absolutely. Which is something that I appreciate so much that they did create the comics because, yes, for the animated series, it ends on this, like, happy note. Mm -hmm. But the comics do explore the complications that come after war. It, it doesn't just leave the story there. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, which most things do. You know, most yeah. books, TVs, shows, movies. Return of the Jedi has <laughs> everyone dancing to the Jub Jub song all over the universe, the galaxy, as they knew the, the Death Star blew up. But, like, as we've seen in new things, you know, there's still remnants of the Empire. The New Order ends up coming out. Apparently the there's Order. still remnants of Palpatine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? This is not the end of the these stories. So, yeah, Star Wars could do a lot better exploring <laughs> what that means than they have. We don't have an idea of justice <laughs> in Star Wars. <laughs> well, I guess we should go into our takeaways. Yes, what is yours? Yeah, I think mine is, is just, again, that... Avatar is such a rich world and in particular I think invites these kinds of discussions where you can have these kinds of structural and political analyses of aspects of that world in really interesting and in-depth and nuanced ways that don't always have clear answers. It's not just every villain is just a villain. Like, yes, Ozai wanted to commit genocide, just a villain. But (laughs) Amon, Zaheer, they have much more complicated perspectives and uh, goals. And I can still condemn many of their actions while also recognizing that they are seeing injustices in the world around them that they're trying to respond to. And I think that that's just really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, totally. What's your takeaway? Yeah, I think my takeaway is that similarly, I appreciate kind of those layers that it's not quite as flat as a lot of things are. And especially with Korra, like, there are villains that I understand intellectually, even Mm -hmm. if I don't agree with morally. And I think that's also put into the heroes of the series. Mm. I I wish they did a little bit more to bring some of that out. Like, even we were talking about Tenzin just, like, gets her out of the pickle she's gotten herself into. So, yeah, I wish that there was a little bit more there but it still is there if you look for it 
just like how most of the villains aren't one note, I think most of the heroes aren't one note either, that there are times that they do things or want things or contribute to things that aren't just. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we all do that sometimes to some degree. So mm-hmm. um, that's important too. Yeah, yeah, very true. Okay, well, I think that's going to wrap up this discussion. Can you bring up what we're discussing next week? Yeah, so we are going to be returning to Harry Potter, and we are going to be looking at the series through the theme of privilege. I feel privileged to be able to talk about that with you. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's not exactly the way that we were going to be looking at it, but yeah. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description, or you can join us at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines if you want to become a supporter of the podcast. That'll get you access to all sorts of great extra content, and it'll help us to keep the show sustainable. You can also tell a friend about the show, uh, because word of mouth is the best way for us to get new listeners. We've gotten a few new listeners recently, which we really appreciate. Welcome aboard. It's great to have you here, Um, but we're always hopeful that we'll reach new ears as well so if you've got a friend you think would enjoy the podcast let them know and if you don't have a friend who would enjoy the podcast who are your friends <laughs> so rude continue. we want to thank kimberly taylor pastel at lacelet for designing our logo you can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for lacelet on facebook or instagram thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week until then geek, geek out, out.